became notorious because other police started to talk about how he was on the take. The more crooks he caught and pushed through the courts, the more his bosses liked it and the more untouchable he became. It was bacchanalian scenes with drugs and sex and all sorts of stuff. It was Babylon stuff. I'm Andrew Rule. Today we're going to talk about Victoria's worst rogue cop. At least the worst rogue cop we can talk about because A, he did five years in jail and B, he's extremely dead. His name is Paul William Higgins. This story starts chronologically when Paul Higgins, a boy from South Melbourne, is sent to Assumption College Kilmore, which in the 1960s was renowned, as it still is in some ways, as a tough boarding school, tough Catholic boarding school that had extremely tough and skillful football teams. And in that intake at boarding school at Assumption College were two very different people, both of them good sportsmen. One was the young Paul Higgins from South Melbourne, and the other one was Francis Burke. Francis Burke is one of nature's gentlemen. Not only he was a superb sportsman, uh, he represented the school in the first 18 and the uh, first 11 and anything else that he could get into, but was always a model citizen. I happen to know Francis Burke personally, and he is a gentleman. The other one is Paul Higgins. He also represented the school in the various sports. He stood in the same photograph, team photographs as Francis Burke. He was, I think, a ruck rover in Assumption First Eleven, and I think he might have gone on to play a little bit of VFL football for South Melbourne, whereas Francis Burke, of course, had a highly decorated career with uh, Richmond Premiership teams. But whereas Francis Burke went on to marry and have a tribe of very lovely children and to run various businesses, pubs and news agents and other things, Paul Higgins joined the police force. And Paul Higgins initially went very well. He was a fit, tough, young copper. He knew his way around the inner suburbs, the South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, sort of Collingwood, Richmond area. And he was pretty sharp, pretty street smart and physically very tough. I think he might have been one of the police force's leading lights in the boxing competitions they used to hold. Uh, and he was a very good wrestler. He was renowned as a street fighter and a very tough nut. But whereas, you know, someone like Francis Burke used his powers for good, Paul Higgins used his powers ultimately for bad. Not that you would know it for some time, because Paul Higgins had a very rapid rise in the police force of that era. In the late 60s and early 70s, he was pushed up through the ranks very rapidly because he was renowned as a good thief catcher, probably a good thief basher. And he was put in the CI, as we call it, the CIB, Criminal Investigation Branch, within a few years. He became a detective in very short order. So having joined the police force, you know, as he turned 18, by the time he was 25, I think, he was pretty well on the way to being a detective. He later became a sergeant. He became first a well-known policeman and detective and then a notorious detective. He ran around with a group of other colourful police. He was useful to them because he was tough, he was fearless, and he would take on crooks with fists or truncheons or guns or whatever it took. And for a long time, it seemed that this attitude of his of bending and breaking the rules 
and of manipulating the system was working in his favour because the more crooks he caught and pushed through the courts, the more his bosses liked it and the more untouchable he became. But too much of a good thing is never a good thing because in the end it would appear that Paul Higgins became notorious. He became notorious because other police started to talk about how he was on the take. Police whispered to each other that Higgins, you know, had the sports cars, Higgins had the new suit, Higgins had this and that, and it was clear that he was becoming very close with his underworld informers. And the way the world worked in those days was that some detectives would cultivate some criminals and they would get information from them, which they would use to prosecute the bad guys, the bank robbers and so on. But in return, the unspoken deal was that the guys who did the informing would get away with their crimes. So in a sense, what rogue police would do was to franchise crime. Now, in New South Wales and Queensland and possibly in Perth, this became an art form. So the homicide squad would run the homicides, the armed robbery squad would run all the armed robberies (laughs) and so forth. But in Victoria, there was no doubt that Paul Higgins and a handful of other rogue police were franchising crime and covering it up by saying, well, we need to cultivate informers so that we can catch other crooks. And they got away with it, but in the end, the dogs were barking about Paul Higgins. And eventually, it became so smelly that a senior officer set him up. And what he did, the senior officer stayed back at Russell Street Police Headquarters one day, deliberately, and he radioed Paul Higgins in these days, of course, it was pre-mobile phones. He radioed Paul Higgins and said, you know, base to Paul Higgins, where are you? Got no answer. Got no answer for some hours. And this was technically an offence because he was on duty and he was supposed to diary, enter in a diary where he had been, what inquiries he was making. And when he got back to work, it turned out that he hadn't accounted for those missing hours. Now, God knows what he was up to, but it wouldn't have been good. He was probably at a brothel collecting cash and uh, probably having sex with the inmates of the brothel. And the police, the senior police got him on a technicality, so they busted him back to uniform. And they put him in uniform at Russell Street, which is where the sort of spare parts police were based, and they would be sent out to whatever jobs were on. And although he was busted back to uniform, Paul Higgins continued to impress his immediate seniors, those just above him, senior sergeants and inspectors, by being a great thief catcher. He would still get results. He would still drag people through the courts. And according to some of those who work with him, he was still very much on the take. It hadn't altered his style at all, hadn't cramped his style. He was still driving around in an exotic sports car and he was still collecting a hell of a lot of cash from brothels. He actually formed a relationship with a big brothel owner called Jeff Lamb. Now, Jeff Lamb was a sniveling, ultimately a drug addict, but he was a cunning criminal who had a whole chain of brothels and they flourished because they were under police protection and the police protection meant Higgins and Higgins henchmen. And Lamb later on, when pursued by the forces of righteousness, rolled over on Higgins and would actually give evidence against Higgins. And the time came when Lamb gave evidence that Higgins had, A, firebombed 
opposing brothels in order that lamps would flourish. Higgins had stood over other brothels, bashed people, bashed and raped prostitutes at other brothels, and had done a whole series of things. Meanwhile, of course, he had attended Lamb's house for all-night parties. You know, it was bacchanalian scenes with drugs and sex and all sorts of stuff, and it was Babylon stuff. And when this all came to court, as it eventually did in the late 80s, Paul Higgins was charged with several offences, but he had so many people barracking for him in the police force because probably they were also somehow implicated in some of his corruption, let's say, that he would have had some people where he wanted them and they worked behind the scenes for him. It turned out that the prosecution of Paul Higgins, it took years. It took 420 sitting days or thereabouts. It took tens of millions of dollars. It almost broke the police association. In the end, the Higgins case became a wrestling match, a proxy war between the police command who wanted to clean up the force and the police association that was determined that it would be seen to defend its members. And the police association spent untold money on the legal defence of Paul Higgins on a principle because their members started out saying, well, we want to be protected by our association, therefore we want Paul Higgins to be represented properly because it could be one of us one day. Well, after the police association had spent all this money over you know two years, the association members weren't so keen. They could see that their association, their union, was going broke. It was verging on bankrupt. And they actually changed their tune and they changed the rules of their association so that the association would never again be dragged into spending millions of dollars paying up for legal representation for bent coppers. Ultimately, after this marathon legal case, Paul Higgins was sentenced to seven years and he actually served five with good behaviour. And while he was inside, he studied, I think, human movement, that is how to build bigger muscles and PE, that sort of thing, physical education. He was always a very fit man who did a lot of physical culture. And he survived his time inside. I think a couple of crooks fronted him inside, but he stared them down. He was physically very tough and mentally very tough. And eventually he got out of jail and he lived in semi-disgrace, although a few of his old-time cronies stuck to him. And indeed, when he died at the age of 69, a couple of years ago, a few of those staunch allies put death notices in the papers in support of Paul Higgins. But I have to say, there weren't that many of them. There are a couple of postscripts to the story of Paul Higgins, and they don't reflect well on the culture of the police force of the past. One story goes like this. Paul Higgins used to go to a nightclub called the Galaxy Nightclub. It's where the crooks and detectives would gather. It was a nightclub in the city, not far from police headquarters in those days, the old Russell Street headquarters. And this nightclub would go in those days till, you know, 2am, let's say, and then the crew of real hardheads, bent coppers and uh, crooks, would move on down to St Kilda, where there were premises that would be like speakeasies. There was one called the Aquarium, out on the boardwalk there where they would gather and they would wheel and deal and, you know, do all the bad things that those sort of people do. And at the Galaxy, Paul Higgins cultivated a relationship with a young woman 
that we will call Julie. We won't use her second name because she went on later to form a, a different life, I believe. But she didn't cover herself in glory by knocking around with Paul Higgins. She lived in East Melbourne, in Grey Street, East Melbourne, in a unit. And during the evenings and overnight, she would work at the Galaxy Nightclub, notionally as a barmaid. Julie was a barmaid. But Julie made a lot of money while working. She would get a lot of tips. She would get so many tips in one night that it was more than a week's wages for a receptionist. And I know this fact because Julie had a neighbour, a very young neighbour, a 19-year-old girl, an innocent 19-year-old girl from the, from the suburbs, who'd come in and rented this flat in East Melbourne, this little apartment, while she worked as a receptionist in the city at the, um, I think, the Australian Wool Corporation in Burke Street. And this 19-year-old girl, who we'll call, we'll call her Lindy, which is a version of her name. Lindy was 19 and innocent. Julie was, say, mid-twenties and not innocent at all. She was a very hard case. She was probably a sex worker of some sort. And she had this relationship with Paul Higgins. And Higgins would come down and he would visit Julie and he would stay the night. And in passing, he met this girl we'll call Linda, the 19-year-old. And, you know, Julie said, this is my neighbour, Linda. You know, this is Paul, blah, blah, blah. Well, one night, poor old Linda's had a hard day at the Wool Corporation as a receptionist and she's watching television at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and there's a knock on her door. And it's Paul Higgins, Sergeant Paul Higgins. Couldn't hang a dollar off him, smooth suit, the whole thing. And he says, oh, look, I was here to see Julie, my girlfriend, but she's not here. Now, the truth was, Julie, as she did every night, was working at the Galaxy nightclub. So he was telling lies. He knew that she wouldn't be home. And he's deliberately come there just to knock on the 19-year-old girl's door. He said, she's not here, but can I wait here with you until she gets home? And Linda says, oh, okay, Paul, um, come in. Do you want a coffee or whatever? You know, I'm watching, you know, Days of Our Lives. No, watching whatever. And uh, she makes him a coffee. Next thing, he grabs her. He drags her into the bedroom very roughly. He holds her down. She was five foot in the old and about 45, 50 kilograms. So she's like a very small jockey. And he was double that weight and a very strong man. He's held her down. He's raped her very roughly. And she was shattered. She was shattered by this. And he left. It's quite late at night when this happened. Next morning, first thing, she goes to the East Melbourne Police Station, which there was one of them. She reports this rape. And the, the person behind the counter, the policeman behind the counter, writes down details, yes, your name, address, time, when, did, what happened, where. And then she said the name of the offender, Paul Higgins. And the policeman looks at her and says, who? She said, Paul Higgins. He said, if that's who I think it is, you better just forget about this. Just go home and forget about it because nothing's going to happen. That's how much power that man had in the late 70s. This happened in about 78. And that's how much power he had that a policeman working at a suburban station just said, don't even think about it. You don't want to know, just go home and forget about it. Get over it. And this tallies with other things we know about Paul Higgins. We know that he raped a witness known as, would you believe, Witness X, who had worked in brothels around Melbourne. 
She was an intelligent woman. She had a very good working knowledge of the brothel industry and how the brothel industry paid bent police. And she gave evidence, and she gave evidence that Paul Higgins had once raped her. There was another fairly well-documented story that he had raped another young woman as well at, um, at some venue. So Paul Higgins got away not only with being a supremely corrupt policeman, a policeman who took bribes from a brothel empire, who dealt basically with drug dealers and brothel keepers and armed robbers and murderers, a policeman who formed a strong corrupt relationship with Dennis Bruce Allen, uh, known as Mr. Death. He was one of his biggest informers. But the deal was that Dennis Allen would never be charged with anything, although he did about 11 murders, perhaps, and although he was behind massive drug dealing and he was behind all sorts of terrible stuff, Dennis Allen was a protected species because he was in a corrupt relationship with Paul Higgins and Paul Higgins' fellow bent police, who we won't name today because one of them's quite well known and still alive. If there's a good part to this very bleak story, it is that Paul Higgins ultimately went to jail, ultimately was disgraced, ultimately, when he got out of jail, lived in disgrace pretty well, was ultimately shunned by all but the most hard case uh, bent police, probably shunned by most crooks because he'd um, he'd connived against them by using informers against them. And he developed a painful disease and I think probably a drug addiction towards the end and died at the relatively young age of 69 two years ago. However, I'd just like to point out that the Victoria Police is a very broad-minded organisation and does not hold the sins of the father against the sons because Paul Higgins' son, one of his children, has joined the Victoria Police. I hope he goes well. troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.